verse 1. Romans 12 and verse 1. So we continue in our series, The Power to Change. And we've been exploring uh, several things. And starting with the words of Jesus, Matthew 15, Matthew 18, drawing a bit on Matthew chapter 12, that the power to change does not depend on factors that are beyond our responsibility, does not depend on factors that are beyond our influence. The power to change is a gift of God that he's willing to give to us. And life can flow from the heart and we access and release God's power for this when we accept our responsibility, starting with that first gospel command, repent of our sins, forgive others for, uh, who have sinned against us. And then in the language of Matthew chapter 12, uh, we've been looking at how doing that cleans the house, as it were, uh, and binds up the strong man. But then in the same language, we, we're moving to a part of the series now where we consciously wanting to ask, ask God, so how do we fill the house with good things? And it's one thing to almost have ablutions, to be able to clean away the waste product of life and its pain and its sorrow in a fallen world. But you need a kitchen and you need a dining room and you want to, Jesus is knocking at the door and he wants to come in and eat with us and invite us to eat with him and do life with us. There's a plus side that although you've got to start, you can't have the house full of junk and muck and rubbish. There's this tremendous plus side of filling the house with good things so that when the darkness wants to come, it just goes, well, there's no room here. We can't come back. And so as we spend time with him from that metaphor in Revelation chapter 3, I stand at the door and knock. If you open that door, there's a door on earth that if you open it, you'll find there's a door in heaven that's already open. Remember that? Door on earth that if you open it, Jesus comes and you'll discover he's already opened the way to the Father, to his embrace, to his presence, to his holiness. And extraordinarily, we're allowed and called and commanded to take even the brokenness of earth into the presence of heaven, to cry out, to lament, to bring to him, to pour out our hearts to him. We go to heaven so that through our prayers, heaven might come to earth. Literally the power to change the earth in those pictures in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. So there's this door in me that I open, communes with Jesus, eats with him, I do life with him, and then he comes. And so right now the world is being changed. You see, it's not just a vision of whether I can change. Of course, the Bible's got that. The world, though, is being changed by people who know how to sit with Jesus both on earth and in heaven. Who see the door standing open because they've opened the door. The world is being changed by people who hear the call, come up here. And who live and pray from heaven to earth and from earth to heaven. So here's something of the kind of like power to change. And uh, we're no longer just the objects being changed, the consumers of whatever is being happening out there. We become the contributors, in fact, the agents of this change is the vision the Bible begins to paint for us. So we come to Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, and it says, I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, 
Notice Paul has been sharing the gospel, as it were, and he's just come out of a section in which you could possibly be divided along racial lines or religious lines, Jew and Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, and he calls everybody family. You're my brother, you're my sister, we belong together. And I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be changed, be transformed, be metamorphosized by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I want to take a couple of weeks just to lean into this idea of be changed, be transformed, be made something new, different, by renewing your mind. Notice it's a passive command. It's a command to let something happen to you by doing something else. If you just say, willpower, cooperate. I'm going to change. I'm going to be different. It's like the programming is still running on the old operating system. You've got to change the operating system and run some new apps. You, you can't just decide you're going to get different results with the same inputs. There's going to be an action that you take that enables you to passively receive the command. He doesn't just say change. He doesn't just say transform yourselves. In fact, he's emphatic. Be changed. Let it happen to you. By renewing your mind. So the first point is, this is going to take time. So make the decision to make time. You know, if we're thinking we're going to renew our minds and it's going to sort of like happen automatically, we're going to be disappointed and frustrated. It's interesting that our passage does not start by telling us to give our hearts to Jesus. Now, that's a great thing. It's not really a biblical phrase, but of course you want to give your heart, your mind, your emotion, everything to God. You want to love Him with all of that. But it's not as though this is a sentiment-driven thing. We're told to give our bodies. Like, when someone's got your body, they pretty much got most of you, haven't they? It's like, if my bodily action is doing this, it's so much more than sentiment or feeling. It's the final frontier of action and obedience to offer your body to do something. Now, when your body is doing something, it is taking up time on the clock. Like if your body is doing something, you've had to make time. We say find time. You're not going to find it. You're going to have to remove some things to make this happen. And so we offer, we train. Paul even says about our bodies, so we offer our bodies living sacrifices, we train our bodies in obedience. Paul even says we discipline our bodies, 1 Corinthians 9, 27. No, I strike a blow to my body. It's like, hey body, you just want to live your way. No, stop it. 
Now, we're not talking in the Middle Ages, get a flagellant and start slapping yourself and all of that. But he says this, I make my body my slave. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, he talks about people who've got no control over their body's desires. It's like if your body wants something, you're just going to give into it again and again. He calls it living in the flesh. Where every impulse that comes your way is actually the thing that governs you. He says, no, no, no. I govern my body. <laughs> my body is subject to me so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. And this enables us to make time for what he calls spiritual worship or reasonable worship or um, true and proper worship. The, the language there is, is quite overlapping. The literal word is your logical worship. Like if you really think about it, this is what God truly, truly deserves. But we use the sense spiritual as in, in contrast to the Old Testament where worship through sacrifice was literal, bloody, and physical. And he doesn't expect your body to become a bloody sacrifice. And so he uses this idea of a spiritual something that transcends the physical. Your body helps you go beyond the physical. When you give your body, you end up discovering the path to being truly spiritual. So, how does this work? We make time. And let's not kid ourselves. This has always been hard. Um, you know, from the earliest days, time is precious. But our reasons today may be different. We are facing an explosion of information and media that is having at least as much impact on our world as the Industrial Revolution did when it first broke over 200 years ago. During that, before that time, people lived in large extended families. They were often apprenticed to grandpa or grandma or dad or whatever and someone well-known, and they worked in the confines of a community, and they worked long and hard. But as this revolution broke in, and the Industrial Revolution, within a generation or two, these families were broken up into little nuclear families, even into migrant labor situations, where dads were here, moms were there, kids were who knows where. And the social glue and conventions that shaped the daily fabric of their lives came under. We are facing the same pressure today for different reasons. The way that we have lived and work is under pressure. Historians already point to a similar level of personal, relational, social dislocation and almost reinventing life in our generation. They talk about being in a liminal state, which is like being in a gray zone. Where you're moving from one place to another. No one knows what the future really looks like. But what has defined our world for the last couple of hundred years is no longer defining us going forward. And we've got to be careful to shape our lives in wise ways. Maybe in our last decade or, or, or so, we've swapped our collective TV watching, you know, television escape, now to even more personally isolated and dislocated space which ironically we call social media. 
nothing to walk into a lounge and there's all of us busy socializing on our own with our screen. You know, the ancients used to talk about living for an audience of one. They weren't talking about their phone. <laughs> it's like we, we're literally living for this screen at the moment. And then we tell ourselves we're too tired or too busy to, and we really don't have time to read the Bible when we're spending easily seven hours a week on technology. And so instead of letting technology serve us, we ourselves have become slaves to the thing it's made supposedly to make our lives easier. And then we find ourselves saying this. Sure, reading the Bible's hard work, isn't it? <laughs> like this renewing your mind thing. Oh, it's like, it's, it's hard work. It's so much easier when someone makes a TikTok video or just pops something with a nice picture on it or a little meme or whatever. And it just seems like that little bite size of curious information and it is nice when it's interesting or a blessing or someone actually gave some thought and there's some meaning to it but that's not going it's going to condition your mind it's going to condition your mind in its ability to take in input it's going to condition your mind in what you naturally think about it's going to condition your mind in how much time you spend in that space of course it's going to condition your mind but it's not going to renew your mind And then complaining about a silent God while my Bible stays closed is like complaining about not getting texts when my phone is off. If I want to enter into a place of reasonable, spiritual, true encounter with God, I am going to have to put the work. Now Dave rightly said that in terms of our salvation, there's nothing we can do. There is the work, but this takes me to point number two. In renewing our minds, effort is essential. Earning is the problem. If you're thinking about your relationship with God and you think this is going to take no effort, you're mistaken. It takes no earning. You cannot earn your way to God. You do not read your Bible in order to merit anything from Him. You're not paying God. It's not transactional. But God is not punishing you with, you know, losing a sense of his presence or his wisdom or his guidance or discerning what his will is when you're not in his word any more than you're going to be desperate for oxygen if you stop breathing and hold your breath. Like if you stop feeding on the word and you get hungry and you become malnourished, it's not, God's not punishing you. He hasn't got anything in for you. He's paid for it. He's made it available. It's a self-inflicted malnutrition. It's a mistake to think that because of God's great mercy, I have to do nothing. This is a, a passive imperative, but with a participle that tells you what you must do instead. Be transformed by renewing your mind. There's the work I need to do. If I really want to learn how Change is going to work. God's mercy does not mean there's nothing I should do. That the life that he's promised is just going to land in my lap. 
I was talking to some younger guys recently and they expressed disappointment at the spiritual results they were seeing in their lives. And it was sort of like a conversation is, why does God make this so hard? What's wrong with God? But as we spoke, and I just asked a couple of questions, it was evident that they misunderstood mercy in which there's the possibility in which my work leads me to him. They were confusing mercy with journey, in which I actually still need to walk the path. The power to change is a gift from God. We could never earn it. But you do have to take that gift and invest it. You literally got to put an investment into that gift. You got to put that resource to work. And a picture that really helps me is the picture of a well. And imagine a barren landscape and you're in, say, the Middle Eastern areas and it's arid and it's dry and you're coming along and you're wishing you could find water and someone says, it's there, it's just under the ground. There's more than you need and it's fresh and it's clean and it's good. And so you begin to dig. You put the work in. You didn't earn the water. You didn't make the water. But you dig and you go down and eventually the water starts coming. But what do we need to do? In order to keep accessing that, you need to do what Jacob did and Isaac did and Abraham did. You need to take stones and build retaining walls so that the environment around doesn't just gradually close the well up again. And so the metaphor in my mind is like reading scripture, memorizing scripture, praying. Worship, fasting, community, accountability, confession, repentance, forgiveness, uh, meditating on scripture, solitude, time alone with God, you know, writing my journal. All those are like stones. And when I put them in place, they never take the place of the water. Like the water is the life God promises. The water is God himself. But what those stones do. So I never go, oh wow, look at my stones. Like, that's just, you know, dumb. But when they are in place, it's just so much easier to go to the well and find the water that satisfies. Now that is going to take effort. That is going to take maintenance. That's going to take attention. That's going to take putting those different pieces in place. And by the way, it's going to take more than one stone. One of the joys is discovering how many stones go into a good well. You see, it's not that we need to try harder to find God. It's not that we're doing something that obligates God to us. It's that we're doing something that enables us to receive what God has already given. And then we need point number three. So the first is we're going to make time. The second is, whatever it was, effort is essential, <laughs> not earning. You're not earning this, but you do need to put effort in. It's going to take work. 
And then resist the pressure to conform to the age. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Other people say don't. Other translations, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. The original language about the mold or the whatever is that, that and actually it doesn't even use the word world. We put it in there. It uses the word age. And it contrasts this present, what Paul calls in Galatians, this present evil age. In other words, a way of living, a context, an environment in our day, as it were. There's a set of rules, some basic assumptions about life and how it works. Don't let this age dictate to you. Don't let this age, and then it's the word that we get for scheme. This, this age has a plan for your life. You know, you've heard the four spiritual laws. God loves you. He's got a wonderful plan for your life. This age doesn't love you, and it's also got a plan for your life. It's got a scheme. It's got a method. It's got a way of living and a, and a way of shaping us. And he says, you've got to watch for this age. This world defined, defined by the fall that's in competition with God. And, you know, th the age changes. The spirit of the age changes. So what you've got to watch out for, you know, 200 years ago is probably different to what you've got to watch out for today. Some of the things we need to be careful, I'm going to go through these super quickly. I'm happy to have more conversations about these, but one of the things in this age is pluralism. In other words, that all beliefs are legitimate and that you're very judgmental and narrow when you think that someone else might be wrong. To say that someone else is wrong is, quite frankly, Go figure. But this is a serious view. And I mean, of course, it's you know, kind of put out there and it's just in media. and it's, it's, it's the view. It's the oxygen we're breathing. It's the conversations we're having. It's when you bite your tongue at the office when someone makes a comment and you know you completely disagree with them, but you realize that you're some, in their mind, terribly judgmental if you say anything. And so tolerance is no longer the right to disagree with each other. It's become the fact that somehow everybody is correct. Until they wrong! <laughs> and then you cancel them. You unfriend them. We, we reach a point where pluralism is just stupid. But up until that moment, we all try and live it. What does pluralism do? It stops you from discerning. You edit your judgment for fear of being judgmental. Individualism. Society has less claim on me than my desire stand up. Who are you to tell me what to do? What's it got to do with anybody else? What I do with my mind, what I do with my eyes, what I do with my body. Thank you very much. It's got nothing to do with you. Really? Really? You don't believe that. And yet that's what you will often find yourself saying. You see, you believe it until, again, like pluralism, it's really wrong. 
person thrown in prison and punished and done whatever. You don't believe that what they do has got nothing to do with any of this. It's just that we've been taught to apply that very selectively. And so we're told it's my body, therefore it's my choice. It's got to stop a certain attitude. That's moved from the godly one and responsibility to choose with whom I will not have sex. It's my body. It's my choice. They respond to, it's my body, it's my choice. I'll have sex with whom I please. Thank you very much. You've got no right to say anything to me. To the right to terminate a pregnancy because I'm not going to change the way I live. And suddenly being able to discern truth and wrong and ethics inside that in a world around us is going crazy. You see, in a world of freedom, there's a trade-off the philosophers tell us. There's always been this trade-off. We desperately need social order to reduce anxiety. Like when there's no order, everybody goes mad as well. So we need some kind of rules that keep social order. But that's balanced by our need for a degree of personal expression and integrity. But those things cannot be made absolute. And right now, we living in a world in a Western culture, certainly, where individualism has become so dangerously isolated from its collective responsibilities. And Pastor Bevan will say, Amen to that. <laughs> Very briefly, I've said pluralism, uh, individualism. We live in a world where there's a democratization of knowledge. Where, you know, Google is the professor. And, uh, and we really have no need of experts. In fact, we've become so suspicious because we've been drilled into us. Knowledge is power. Therefore, anyone who claims to have knowledge is trying to gain power over you. And so whether it's in climate change or whatever else it might be, a political discussion, I don't trust anyone to help me anymore. The danger is that quite literally, a 16-year-old who spent five minutes on Google will feel they as informed as somebody who's given a lifetime of research. Somewhere along the line, we're missing the point. And so we've learned to choose our choices and not learn to interrogate our views. And the danger with that, of course, is fake news. Truth is no longer objective, it's just an opinion. And we're living in a world of opinionocracies. Where a person with the loudest voice will reign it over. Don't let the words get you into this moment. We're even living in a world of DIY idols. Idols, I-D-O-L-S. This thing in Swedish. These DIY to us via the algorithms of social media. So you go on and you say that I'm male, I'm this old, that old, and they'll start dropping articles into your newsfeed. They'll start referring random people. Why? Because they don't care what you look at. They just care exactly 
are giving their mental energy to their platform because their profitability is in the hours you spend absorbed in the algorithm rather than in what you're looking for. They if you want to go to the most radically liberal stuff, it'll dish up for you hour and hour. If you want to go to the most you know, terrifyingly fundamentalist stuff, it'll dish up hour upon hour. Why? Because their profit model is time spent renewing your mind with their content. They don't mind where you go. They just mind, they just want you there. And what happens after a while? You get your own DIY idol. We make in our own image. That's what the, that's what the algorithm does. It makes a community for you that literally looks probably like the worst parts of you. And this is the kind of stuff around the cheeks. This really sounds depressing. And then, of course, there's consumerism. We couldn't talk about that today. You know, we're no longer called citizens. If you look at popular stuff out there, today we are called consumers. And the expectation is that we exist because of what we own and what we have consumed, even if it's just the experiences and the memories we've made. And this has become the most defining mold that squeezes us. And so we are being made in the image of something. And we go back to Genesis 1. God said, let us make man in our image. You see, the thing that we give our mind to is what makes us. So point number four, last one. The power to change comes by consciously training ourselves to think differently. Renewing our minds. Don't be conformed by the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve or approve or discern what the Lord's will is. <laughs> Jesus telling the parable at the end of Luke, he says that, the guy said, listen, <clears throat> I just... I would have come, but I bought a team of oxen and I need to go and check them out. That word for checking out that team of oxen is the word for test and approve. In other words, you can discover from the inside, this is what God wants. This is what he loves. This is what's going to honor him. And we're going to come back to this next week. But I hope you're not surprised that this is going to take work and time. You see, the very fact that you're giving something time is the point. See, it's the time that your mind spends on the topic that shapes your mind. You can't squeeze a new mind into an old mold. So the shape of my life my routines. The first thing I do in the morning, what I do when I get a break, those are some of the things that are going to define me. And I've got to tell you, I don't always get this right. My phone has been an issue and during the last um, discovery course, I had to sort of like take a rain check. So now when I wake up in the morning, that's when I put my phone on to charge so that I'm literally picking up a printed Bible and a handbook and doing it spending some time 
wanted level and the tipping point he spoke about the $10,000. He says that people are only going to master something when they give $10,000. I don't say this to boast, but if I think of my walk with Jesus, I probably brought $30,000. We're following Jesus for four decades more. think of the time I had the privilege of spending in his word. Man, according to Malcolm Gladwell, I should be a friggin' genius. <laughs> What's going on? Galatians chapter 6, we see, th- we see this. Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. We reap what we sow. So if you sow to your flesh, in other words, to the thing, those impulses and whatever your body from that you will reap destruction. But if you sow to this to please the Spirit, from the Spirit you will reap eternal life. And there's this very important verse. So let us not become weary in doing what is right or doing good. For at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we do not give up. And so we need to picture our life according to this, like a field. Your field that's being sown, it's full of plants. There's already stuff there. And now you you know, you come to faith and you're going, well, Jesus, I trust in you, but what's in your field? It's what the flesh put there. It's what you've lived up into until that moment. Now, yes, you become a new creation, but the sense of this passage is not instantly everything changes and your mind is made new and you're all sorted all at once. There isn't an experience that does that. Making your mind new and sowing to a new life it's like carefully going through that field and choosing a patch and you start to pull out the weeds. And then you take the new seed of the new life and the new mind and you start sowing it into that section of the field. And if you'll do that, then you can go to the next section of the field. You can clear that and you can plant some new stuff. This is what renewing your mind is like in this picture. And then you go to the next section and another area of your life. Now you start to think about your relationships and you realize, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. You pull out those weeds and you start finding a new thing. Then you think about your worship and you think, oh, I've been doing this. No, the Bible says that. And so you pull that out and you do that. Then you think about your, your career and your work and your responsibility. You go, oh, okay, let's pull that out. I need to sow this. And slowly over time, you've got a new bag of seed but got the same field and you've got to dig it up and that's why it says don't become weary and lose heart when it takes a long time you reap your reward if you do not give up it suggested that a little bit like Israel used to gather manna danger of today's world is that you gather for one day and then try and make it through six. Come to church, hear something that inspires you, challenges you, and then you're going to hang on to that for six more days.
Thank you. 